Good afternoon and welcome to Taking Ship, a guided cruise through Demis Timeline America. I'm Maggie Moore, joined by Ellie Jacobs, as well as a gang of germs, which I'm sure that everyone can tell by the way that my voice sounds. And if you don't like it, that's really too bad for you. Imagine being me. Uh, Even though I'm clearly contagious, it is definitely a game changer for us to all be in the same room together. And we want to give a shout out to the good folks uh, of Stand Up New York for letting us use their podcast studio again. We are, and forevermore, eternally grateful. Hey, Ellie. Hi, Maggie. Yes, the people from Stand Up New York, as Frank would say, could have up to half of our kingdom if we had one. Um, Yeah, uh, well, Jason Stanford, the Commodore, is in town, but he's not on the podcast, unfortunately. Frank is still on shore leave uh, after the birth of the baby. We will all get together sometime in the next week or two and do deep dives into both Brexit and the Israeli election Mm -hmm. and all, all the other kinds of things that have been happening for the last while. So after our lengthy shore leave, I mean, after all, who wants to be on a boat in August... We're back aboard Salty Jason's Revenge with a terrific guest today. My friend for 20 some odd years, Saul Osterlitz. So old. Who has a... So old. old. (laughs) Oh, and Maggie's birthday was this weekend. Happy birthday, Maggie. I am also old. Thank you. Yeah, now. (laughs) Um, But before we get to Saul, please be sure to subscribe and rate us on whatever platform you use and also give us a follow on Twitter at at @takingship, and that's ship with a P as in phlegm. (laughs) Uh, So as I said, I've known Paul, uh, Saul for... uh, Paul Saul. Clearly not I'm long stuck, enough. I'm stuck on the P. Okay. We're, we're still reviewing. Yeah, we're still reviewing. <laughs> um, we've known each other a long time. We studied together at the same school in Israel after graduated high school. Um, Saul's primarily here to talk about his brand new book called Generation Friends, an inside look at the show that defined a television era, released yesterday. Um, it's already number one in a couple categories on Amazon, and I saw it crack the top thousand, at least earlier this morning, maybe higher now. That's after this, After this, it'll be... Absolute bestseller guaranteed. It's going straight to number one. Straight to number yeah. one. Um, before we really solve, we're just do. I'll do a quick read of your bio because it's very impressive. You're a freelance journalist, and you've been published basically in every major publication in existence. No braggies. No braggies. He's an adjunct professor of writing and comedy history at New York University, as well as the author of Money for Nothing: A History of the Music Video from the Beatles to the White Stripes, Another Fine Mess: A History of American Film Comedy. Sitcom, a history in 24 episodes from I Love Lucy to Community, Just a Shot Away, Peace, Love, and Tragedy with the Rolling Stones at Altamont. And as and the aforementioned Generation Friends book that we'll be talking about today. Which I think uh, deserves a clipped amount of applause. Nice. Thank you. Well done. Thank you. Uh, Saul's originally from Los Angeles, went to Yale, and has a degree from the NYU's Tisch School of Arts and lives in Brooklyn. So, Saul, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me today. Absolutely. So, uh, we, we've both read the book. We, your, your publisher was nice enough to send us reviewer copies a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. I read it sort of immediately and have forgotten some of it, but <laughs> I, I, I flipped through it again yesterday. I, I have to admit, I am at a lo- I'm at a certain loss in this. Um, I didn't really watch the show. Uh, Thursday nights when we were in high school were, was basketball night, so like mm. I, didn't, I didn't watch Friends when it was on the air, and then subsequently... Just never really got into it. I've seen episodes here and there, but I was doing a lot of YouTubing after I read the book to see old clips and kind of get the context of it all. But I believe Maggie is thoroughly, as with all pop culture things. Yes, definitely. Well, so I I also didn't actually watch Friends when it was on. I was a little young for that. but then five. Yes, exactly. Um, But uh, I remember... Friends was the first show that I actually got on Netflix when you could get the DVDs. And we I shared the account with my parents, um, but I quickly just took over the DVDs that could, could actually come. So I was like, it was the first show I really remember binging. Um, and so my, my pop culture brain uh, can 
store lines and, um, you know, impressions and things like that. And I remember Friends was the first show that I did that with. And now this is a power that I wish I could use for good. Um, <laughs> cultural references and like uh, being able to remember absolutely everything that I've seen in a show or a movie, but I can't. I haven't been able to apply it to something useful like science uh, or something because um, surely I would have a Nobel Prize by now. Um, but I remember in high school, in early college, I used to play a game with my friends um, in which they could name any noun and I could somehow with like degrees of separation relate it to something that I'd seen in friends. I can't do that now. Um, Damn it. I'm, I was like Rain Man for Friends, um, so I had a deeply, and I had a deeply personal relationship with Friends. But I was wondering if you could then tell us um, a little bit about what your like personal relationship with Friends is, and sort of like how the the journey of this book got started. Yeah, so I did watch it in high school. It started when I was a junior in high school, I think, and sophomores uh, or juniors on sophomore, maybe sophomore in high school, yeah. and. I really liked it and and felt a connection to it. I don't know that I kept up watching it the mm-hmm. whole way through. I think in college, like we went to college so long ago that there wasn't Such a long like time ago. <laughs> not everyone had a TV in their sure. room. You didn't have cable. You didn't. There was no and Netflix. You miss it, it's gone. Right. So so I'm sure I missed a bunch of it. I ended up watching it again when I was working on my books at Com a couple of years ago, and I really liked it and wrote a chapter about it and sort of felt like I'd said my piece about it. Um, but then afterwards, I came across this article in the Times maybe t- three, four years ago, mm-hmm. and it was about how high schoolers in New York were discovering Friends and treating it as a brand new show that mm-hmm. they loved and were obsessing about and arguing about at school. And I found that so fascinating because what show from the 1990s not only maintains its audience, mm-hmm. but finds a new audience right. of people who weren't even alive when the show was first on. And so that phenomenon got me really thinking about it and kind of got me interested in in taking another look at it and trying to explain how it came about, both to the new fans who weren't around when it was first on and also trying to tell the whole story of the show for for the fans who had been watching for a longer time. Absolutely. And I I mean, I think obviously getting friends uh, on Netflix or just having a little bit more availability to... um, to shows that were on in the 90s makes it a lot easier um, for a new audience to, to find it. Um, but I'm wondering if in some of the things that you've heard or, or read about like high schoolers watching it now like versus the coverage of it then, um, sort of are they picking up on the same things? Like do, do young people from the 90s like the same things about it as like Generation Z now? Or are they sort of like attached to different parts of the show? It seems like the younger fans are kind of reading it in a different way. And to some extent, they often want to kind of argue against the grain of the show. So, like, the show is very intent on pushing certain ideas of who belongs with who, Rachel and Ross. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, sort of faded in the stars on, on the show. On a break or not on a break. Right. And and I feel it seems like the younger audience is more intent on kind of not being into that or at least in, in arguing with the show. And what I think is interesting about that is that they're treating it less as, like, a closed thing. Mm. Oh, like, this is a classic. We just sit and we watch it. Sure. And more like an open text that they're comfortable arguing with. And so a lot of a lot of the conversation is often about how is the show homophobic? How is the mm-hmm. show transphobic? How could it do better on this issue or that issue? And I think some of the critiques are valid and some are maybe less so. But it's fascinating to me that people are interested in engaging with a 25-year-old show and, and wanting to have it be up to the mark of, of what people expect from 
culture in 2019. How much does that have to do with just the way that we watch TV now versus the way we did? So for instance, when we were in high school, either you caught the episode that week or you caught it maybe in reruns at the end of the at the end of the season or maybe you figured out how to use the VCR and tape it, but if you didn't see it then, you didn't see it and it was serial. Like you didn't know what was going to happen next week whereas now anybody who started the show has probably spent time on YouTube or BuzzFeed or something and already knows sort of where things end up. So it's easier. It's, I guess I'm asking like the fact that you can argue over an entire corpus versus like one episode that must change sort of the way that people process this. Yeah. I think it's a very different relationship. I think it it also lends itself more to what it maybe always was, which is this, this kind of television comfort food. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that like... Why would so, comfort food be bad? Comfort food is the best. That's yeah. the only food there is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so many people over the course of researching this book told me about, you know, uh, a time where they had been struggling and kind of turned to friends to to mm-hmm. keep them company or uh, people that they had known who who had kind of looked to friends to to soothe them in a difficult time. I think it's maybe easier when it's Netflix and you can watch... 10 episodes over the course of an afternoon versus how it was in the 90s where you'd watch, like you're saying, you would watch the finale and be like, oh my God, what's going to happen? You have to wait four months to find out. You have to watch commercials like a sucker. Right. Commercials. (laughs) Boo. I don't even, like, I seriously don't even remember commercials anymore. Why would you? Why would you? I also think it's interesting that what you were saying about arguing with the show and sort of engaging in more of a conversation with the show um, because... The way that we interact, I mean, with culture more broadly, but especially with TV shows, like I'm usually half watching the show, half looking at Twitter, especially if I'm watching something live or like even if I'm like shooting the shit and watching ER and making jokes on Twitter about ER. Um, but, you know, um, when did the site Television Without Pity actually get started? Like actually people would watch TV and then write reviews of it. I forgot about that. Sh- yeah. And like that, and that was the first site that, if I'm recalling correctly, was reviewing TV shows for people to then look back and like read the review later if you missed what was on the right. show. But now like there are tons of reviews, not only just about TV, but like you can review anything all the time. Right. Like they get sort of access to... Um, um, using TV or movie as like a cultural prism, I think it's just a lot easier with the rise of Ellie's least favorite thing, social media. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering, like, just with, do you feel like that's probably part of the reason why Gen Z or people that are watching something like Friends now feel like they can have more of a conversation with the show as opposed to just accepting what the writers say, like, this is how you will enjoy the show? Yeah, it does create a different setup where, you know, newfound friends fans can can share memes from the show mm-hmm. or kind of argue about plot lines that they don't like and there's another way to find each other whereas before when people were watching it in the 90s it was more like who am i going to see at school the next day who mm-hmm. watched the show who's interested in debating it or you know sharing our enthusiasm together yeah. isn't so, there also there's now there, there exists the give and take between showrunners and writers and their audience in a way that it didn't 20 30 years ago because it was closed loop, right? You saw it on TV and then they saw the Nielsen ratings or they did screenings and got some reviews from people. Yeah. Or they got it from the live audience. But now I remember there was an article, hell, I don't remember where where I read it, but it was for another show I never watched called Gossip Girl. There was something about yes, that they- Yes, I'm very familiar with the show. Used, the, I believe I've heard of it. The writers used to read the cut or one of the reviewers and like would actually like put like Easter eggs through the show in reference to things that the reviewers were writing which I thought was like really fascinating. That was like groundbreaking to me. And I assume that happens much more frequently with modern shows. I mean, like 
the good place or, or parks and rec or something like that, where there is sort of a give and take that's going on with an audience as opposed to or fan here, service. take this. Or fan service, right. like if a fan, like clearly if like a joke from season one like blows up, they'll bring that right. back and it's sort of like a little wink at the audience, like we're listening to you, right. that sort of a thing. Right, right, right. Well, it's, pos- it's positive and it's negative, this idea mm-hmm. of fan service. There was an article in the New Yorker this past week about the rise of fan culture and, and part of it was that so m- clearly the people who, who create culture are very aware of what fans are saying. They know that their mm-hmm. social media, they know they can kind of get instant feedback about what they're making for, for good and for bad. I think the positive side of it is that they have a sense of what fans actually like. But I think the downside of it is kind of the same, which is that they can then devote so much of themselves to giving the fans exactly what they want. But the whole thing about culture is that fans don't necessarily know what they want. They want you to surprise them. They want something new and fresh and different. If you ask them, they're going to only want the same thing they've already gotten. And so I think the push and pull between that is kind of fascinating. Yeah, I think that's why people were so disappointed with, I mean, for many reasons, so disappointed with um, the way Game of Thrones turned out is that like we wanted a little bit more fan service, but also I think the writers then got so obsessed with this idea of subverting expectations, which is a great trick to use when you're writing. Right. And it's a great um, a great theatrical piece, but um, took it way too far. Uh, also, my personal theory is that they just wanted to move on to writing Star Wars and they were super done with Game of Thrones, but... That yeah, is, I th- I th- that's me editorializing. I thought some, one of the interesting things in the book, I, you're talking about the guest stars on the, you know, they had some of the biggest stars in the world were guest stars on the show. And that's clearly seemed like a response to the popularity of the show that these huge movie stars wanted to be on a sitcom and that it kept happening over and over, or they had recurring roles over like an arc of a season. I kind of, I found that whole discussion really, really interesting in the book of how it came about and how, was it Charlie Sheen? Like he, he like passed out because he was so nervous from acting in yeah. front of a <laughs> Well, it's it's sort of a helpful reminder that, you know, these people who are giant movie stars, they didn't really act in front of audiences anymore. Mm. The whole idea of there being an actual audience of people watching your performance yeah. was terrifying because they act on movie sets. They're closed. It's only the cast and the crew. There's nobody else there. And to suddenly step out on a stage and see 500 faces looking back at you, I think, can be scary. And the the interesting thing about the guest star thing is that kind of, again, speaking to this idea of friends always having this youthful fan base, my, my sense from talking to people was that a lot of the really big names on the show, they agreed to appear on Friends because their kids liked the show. Mm-hmm. And because they maybe made movies that their kids couldn't see or weren't interested in seeing, mm-hmm. but appearing on Friends, that was a sign, oh, mom and dad, they're, right. they're a big deal. So t- Tom Selleck's kid didn't know anything about Magnum P.I., but they were very into <laughs> probably his role as the creepy older man boyfriend i mean he's tom Selleck. he can do anything he wants yeah but. i mean that's why um uh i'm blanking on the actor's name but took the role of voldemort he didn't really know what harry potter was but his kids loved we're like dad you have to do this and so he did and like and i'm like great now we have a, a big big movie star <laughs> in harry i mean most british actors were in harry potter but right it's yeah it's because their kids liked it and so you know, speaking about some of the we, we touched on it briefly, some of the criticism that the show is now getting in hindsight, whether, you know, the top 30 things that are wrong with friends or anything like that. The question struck me last night as um, my daughter and I were listening to Lizzo, was sort of like, how can the same people who are the fan base for Lizzo be the same fan base for friends? Those They seem like two things that shouldn't exist in the same universe. What's the distinction between them in your mind? Friends is sort of this archaic... And all the criticisms looking back 25 years, and there's obviously, you know, particularly with the election now and opposition research coming on, there's, you know, can you apply standards today to things that happened in a previous era? But if, you if you know, Lizzo sort of pushing the boundaries on everything, Friends was so content in 
it's it's whiteness it's, it's thinness, whiteness it's, it's thinness it's you know desire to not offend anybody at the time because you know pc culture was starting but they didn't like tv didn't really know how to do it yet didn't know how to go about doing it wanted to push an envelope with something like will and grace or or introducing a gay character onto a show but like didn't didn't know how to deal with it whole whole hawk mm -hmm. yeah so i give friends slightly more credit than that i do think that they occasionally tread onto that turf so like they had an episode with a lesbian wedding in the second right. season. That was the first mm -hmm. time that it ever happened on television. So they may not have done it as much oh, as yeah. some other shows. I remember shows. reading that book and being like, holy Susan crap, that was, that was a big deal. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is kind of treading onto political turf, which is Please, maybe good. Let's but do like, it. my sense is that the exact things that you're describing about the show are part of its appeal for younger fans. Like, I think a lot of younger fans look at the actual world around them in 2019 and are just like, this is a shit show, which it is. True. And so the idea of retreating into this Arcadian past of the mm -hmm. 1990s, and like, to me, it's funny. I lived through the 1990s. Yeah, the 90s they weren't, weren't that amazing. They were not that great. But for people who weren't around or weren't like cognizant adults, the 90s are really appealing because nothing happened. Right. There were a time where nothing happened. And, and I think that... Well, there was an impeachment that actually, you know, went through and happened. There was, but there wasn't like... <laughs> but that's this, not what they're grabbing onto. That's not what they're grabbing onto. There wasn't this sense of constant dread right. about every day. And, right. and so I think that part of the appeal of Friends is that it's a retreat into this place where New York is a small town, where you hang out with your friends all day long, where you know that everything you do in life, including somehow having a family and getting married, still somehow includes having breakfast with your friends every day. Right. And the problems of the world don't exist. The biggest problem that you have is... Does she like me? And mm -hmm. and so I think that kind of shrinking the world down to that manageable size right. and having it be much more personal and, and having the exterior world disappear is a really, really appealing fantasy. I mean, so thinking back on the show, and again, I'm not conversing in, in the, whole, the whole thing, I don't recall ever a time of even a reference to something political, whereas Seinfeld definitely made some. That show, you know, whether it was making fun of Giuliani or, or something like that, there was definitely that going on on other shows. Friends didn't seem like there was a social commentary happening. It didn't seem like there was a political commentary. It's sort of just like you were saying, it existed in a bubble even then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a very conscious decision. Um, the creators of the show, David Crane and Marta Kaufman, they decided fairly early on that they didn't want to have any topical humor. And they told the writers, we're, we're kind of skipping those jokes because we feel like they're too easy. And so if you look at the really early episodes, there's one episode where the, um, the women on the show end up having George Stephanopoulos' mm -hmm. pizza delivered to them. But it's kind of the only example of mm. anything that feels topical or that feels connected to a particular moment. So you look right. at Friends and clearly there's like 90s fashion happening on the show and 90s mm -hmm. style. But there's not really anything that dates it in terms of the, the discussion. I don't think Bill Clinton's name is ever mentioned. I don't think George right. W. Bush's name is ever mentioned. The Iraq War, 9-11. I mean, whatever whatever right. moment you want to pick, it doesn't take place on the show it's not referred to. And, and to me, the contrast, the contrast in my mind is always with a show like The Larry Sanders Show, which mm -hmm. is on at the same time. It's a fake talk show with Gary Shandling. And it's just obsessively topical mm -hmm. humor and like current events humor. So there's a whole season where basically all they do is make OJ Simpson jokes. Like right. there's no OJ on friends. They don't, they, they chose not to go down that road. Right. And I think that's maybe also part of why a younger generation can watch it 
and not just feel like, okay, this is a show right. filled with references that I don't understand or that are in my right. history textbooks. And clearly it's not for me. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, in, in parts of, um, the book where you're talking about the writer's room, like, um, where the creators of the show were always looking for that sort of like emotional through line. And so much of the show, like even the best episodes are when they don't leave the apartment, when it's just them and their dynamics and their relationship. And that's and the relationship that they have with each other, um, which what's, which what's make the show so good mm-hmm. is that you can see yourself in those relationship dynamics, or you can see your future self. If, like if you're in high school and you also want to move to New York, that's what living in New York is like hanging out with my friends or that's what your life is like now hanging out with friends, uh, having a good time, um, trying to figure out if they like you or not, um, uh, which makes it, which makes it timeless. Um, and also makes it, um, th- like not necessarily like, um, a show it's a, it's a very, very funny show, but like, um, I've had friends who have said um, things like from the show in their wedding vows about like being each other's lobster um, and like doing that weird hand gesture that Phoebe does, um, which for viewers at home, listeners at home, I did. I linked my fingers together and wiggled my arms. Um, But that uh, makes it so emotionally resonant and that sticks with people is these moments um, of like when Courtney Cox is crying when um, she proposes to Chandler with all the candles in the room. Like it, it really, really hits you. Um, and having those emotional beats of the show be like really the most important thing makes it makes it timeless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Friends is a comedy, clearly, first and foremost, but it's also a soap opera mm-hmm. and that's not a bad thing. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like the the audience comes for the humor, they come for the funny jokes, but they stick around because they want to find out what happens. And so the show is a kind of serialized, humorous soap opera where the emotional nuance is kind of what keeps people interested. Yeah, I, I interested. Kinda, yeah, I mean, I, I always, I was much, I was a huge fan of How I Met Your Mother. And when I was kind of gathering some thoughts this morning, I kind of saw like, would is How I Met Your Mother kind of, a direct descendant of friends in the, in the sense that it's the same group of people. Yeah. It happens to take place in New York, but it could be essentially anywhere, but it's sort of that, you know, the, the arc of how I met your mother kind of more mimicked my, my life at the time, you know, going from not out like maybe having a cell phone to then texting to that, whatever it was, but like some of the conversations that they had in the bar, as opposed to being in a co- coffee shop were like conversations that I would have in a bar without a problem. Like when you look at sort of the, panoply of television shows do you see direct descendants of friends yeah i would say that how i met your mother is definitely a good example of it and and clearly friends is so influential in a way that just this model of okay we're going to have comedy but we're also going to have an emotional quotient to it i mean you can see it on a show like the office which Mm -hmm. is really friends only rival among shows and in terms of streaming audience as a show that you know, continues to have this giant dedicated fan base. And so I think it's less, How I Met Your Mother, I think is pretty much a direct knockoff of Friends in a way, but I think it's less like which shows are exactly like Friends and more look at how many shows have adopted the style where comedy isn't just comedy, but it also has this... this, um, You're going to cry at some point. Yeah, Yeah. they're they're looking for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Um, zooming out a little bit from... Friends from the show itself. I'm actually incredibly interested as someone who has never written a book. Um, there, this, I mean, your book is chock full of like content and like you had to be there kind of stories. So I'm interested how one you approach even writing something like this and sort of what the what the process is. Like, how many people are you talking to, and and how long does something like this actually take to create? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this book took me about a year to put together, and you know 
going in what the general outline of what you want to say is. Mm -hmm. Like this is a public story and you know generally what the beats are that are interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I ended up speaking to maybe 60 or 70 people. Uh, Most of them were involved with the show in some fashion. And and so, yeah, you you know, through the interview process, you learn interesting stories and you also get a sense of, okay, what are the things I need to ask other people about? What do I want to learn more about that I didn't know Mm -hmm. about? going in and it's it's kind of like putting together a puzzle but you don't necessarily know which pieces are out there mm-hmm. or how they fit together um but but yeah it, it's a really interesting challenge um but it's fun it's fun to get to talk to people and it's it's kind of a process of of having them build up trust in you right. you have to prove to them that you know what you're doing mm-hmm. that you're not asking crazy questions and and i think slowly word kind of spreads. Okay, someone's out there asking questions mm-hmm. about our show. They seem okay. And and that kind of makes it easier as things move along. Yeah. And then when you're like sitting down to interview people, so much has been written about this show. How do you make sure that you're uncovering new new stories or, or new tidbits that that ha- or as opposed to just retreading over the same the same stuff? Well, my sense is that people the the more famous the people are, the more likely it is that they've already told their stories a bunch and mm-hmm. and that material is already out there. So I actually didn't talk to the six stars from the show. They they were not interested in talking, which was fine, and I, I kind of knew that going in. Um, but I ended up getting a lot of the best material from the writers on the show, mm-hmm. who often either hadn't ever been interviewed or had only been interviewed a few stray times over the course of their tenure. And they had such fascinating stories and they generally weren't ones that were particularly well-known because they hadn't taken place in front of the cameras. They had been much more about the writing process, about what took place in the writer's room, about the ways that they kind of uh, took their own experiences and their own lives and and turned it into the storylines on the show. And and for me, at least, that stuff was fascinating. It was also my favorite part. Um, so uh, many folks who listen to this show um, already know, but um, I uh, created a devised theater piece. It took about two years. And that's like a whole like writing by consensus process in which a lot of the, all the actors are also writers as well. Um, but... Um, you know, at least in, in a friend's environment, obviously there's actors and there's, there's the writer's room. The actors can have some input on, you know, what jokes are working or some things that they won't do uh, or think that they should do. Um, but uh, referencing back to um, the the excerpt that was in Vulture um, for the book, I found uh, a really interesting dynamic that you described of this, like, um, a, a balance between sort of um, a democracy and a dictatorship of which is something that uh, we had to focus on in the writer's room uh, for my project as well, um, but was trying to come up with and create essentially an illusion of a pure meritocracy, that the best joke always wins. We're always searching um, for the best joke. And I feel like that is such a prevalent kind of like myth, but an idea, especially in comedy, that like, well, it's always just the best joke that ever wins. Um, but do you think that 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 that's actually real, that, that that idea of like the best joke will always win um, is a real thing? I think for the most part. I think as well, like you're saying, it's a meritocracy, but there also has to be someone who finally makes the decision about right. what Right, we can only in, talk about this for out. so long. <laughs> yeah, I think what's, what struck me as interesting was that there were times where Crane and Kaufman, who were the decision makers in that room, would say things like, I don't really like this joke. And it doesn't really work for me, but you guys love it, so let's do that. I found that so interesting and as that well. Is that just, never happens. I would never do that me if either. I were that person. <laughs> and so I, I have a lot of respect for that, that they kind of 
there were times where they just shut it down, right? Mm-hmm. Where they came up with some, wa- the writers came up with a wacky idea and, and, and like, Crane and no. said, no, we're not doing that. But there were other times where they let it go on. And I think one of the examples was one of the writers came up an, with an idea where one of the characters would see a doctor and the doctor would be really into Fonzie from Happy yes. Days. Yes, yes, yes. It's a plot line Just that spouting makes, out random Fonzie makes, facts for no reason. Yeah, it makes no sense at all. And they weren't enthusiastic about it, but they said, hey, sure, let's let's see where this goes. Yeah. And, and that's kind of interesting. I feel like another example of that was um, using the phrase going commando, that Kaufman and Crane didn't know what that meant. Right. Um, and it's the one where uh, um, no one's ready. And it's like a bottle episode. Uh, and they're all in the apartment. And Joey's wearing all of Chandler's clothes, but he's also going commando, which means you're not wearing underwear. But no one really knew what that phrase meant at the time. And all the writers were like, this is really funny. Like, you have to do it. And they said, okay. Right. And like, just sort of like trusting the people that you hired. To me, I found so striking, which like, I feel like in some other um, like oral histories or backgrounds that I hear of other shows, a lot of creators rule with a relatively iron fist. Like showrunners are like, this is my idea and this is my vision and this is what I want to do. Yeah, and and just on that point, the Oxford English Dictionary now singles out this episode of Friends as being one of the sources for going commando. Talk about being just like a cultural phenomenon yeah. about making it into the dictionary. I was I, I was really I was fascinated by the the chapter once you talk about like the, the internal battles they were having about getting Monica and Chandler together because like when watching the show, I was just like, oh yeah, that kind of makes sense. Of course they got together, but I didn't realize that it was such a flashpoint. Or do I, like, I also don't, again, because I didn't really watch the show in real time, I didn't, like, seeing it now, I wasn't like, wow, that must have been such a surprise to people. But, like, in reading the way you, A, you wrote it very, very well, but B, like, going back and then looking at YouTube clips or finding it on on, on Netflix, that, it was kind of like, it did seem like it was just unbelievably shocking. And I, I think one of the things that you, you wrote, they did it three times in front of a studio audience in London, mm-hmm. and, like, each time the place went batshit. Yeah, and it again kind of speaks to the limited information that the creators of the show had at that time, that they were essentially going off of, well, how does how do these three randomly selected groups of British fans happen to respond to it? And that was enough for them to say, oh, this is really working, this is great. Mm-hmm. There wasn't more information than that. But I think it also, it, it says something about the ways in which everyone involved with the show felt like these characters belonged to them, that they were willing mm-hmm. to argue at such great length. I think there are lots of other shows out there where the writers say, whatever you guys decide is fine. I don't really give a shit about these <laughs> characters. They're right. fine. But for a lot of the writers, and it was striking even now, 20 or 25 years later when they were telling me these stories, it kind of, they felt they were feeling it again. These characters belong to them. Mm-hmm. Right. It was in some ways their stories that they had given to these characters. And the characters were often kind of the same age and the same demographic as they were, the writers. And so they felt very strongly about how they would and wouldn't act. Even you know, even knowing that this was a fictional television show, and ultimately, why does it matter? Um, they got really emotionally invested in it. Yeah, you touched on it in a couple of places in the book, but you know, I, hearing it will be will be far more interesting than me trying to regurgitate it. But you talk about some of the places where the actors themselves are like, "No, Ross would never do that," or "No, Rachel would do that." Like, like go back to the writers and be like, "No, that's not how. That's not what I do." I have such qualms with that. Just really? act, actors saying that. Yeah. I mean, I would. I don't mean to interrupt. I say I would love to hear um, your perspective on that, but also just I. I also have fuck thoughts. you, monkey <laughs> dance. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's not necessarily that. But I mean, especially for amateur actors, right? Your character does whatever you say it does. It's a character. Like saying, like saying to your director, like I don't think that my character would do that. 
you're being lazy and that's not necessarily true. So like the, the character does what you, what you want it to do. Right. So like, I don't buy it personally. <laughs> I, th- I think the feeling was that they had to be the faces of these characters, right. right? So whatever they did in some ways, they had to represent that action. And it's not like people mis- mistook Matthew Perry for Chandler or were confusing what he did on the show with him in real life. But I do, th- there did seem to be times where they pushed back saying, I'm not, Good right. with that. Right. So Especially like, if it crosses a boundary or crosses the line where it's like, I'm like, this isn't something that I'm comfortable doing. Like, that makes total sense. Um, of like, I feel like one of the examples was um, Chandler uh, was going to sneak into um, a, a gay bar, was exactly, it? Exactly. To get yeah. a tuna melt. And Matthew Perry was like, absolutely not. And that I feel makes sense. I think more of what my qualm is of like, oh, my character wouldn't get mad at that. Or like, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't exit in that way. Like, like smaller qualms like that. I'm like, always oh, like, no, that, no, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> So while you're doing the research, and, and I'm always just curious about asking these kinds of things, what were a couple things that really like just genuinely you found like jaw dropping, stopped you in your tracks, had to reevaluate the direction you were going in, or just like you were so shocked to learn it that somebody was willing to say it? Um, yeah, I mean, I found all of the the writers' stories about how their lives had kind of played a role on on in the creation of the show to be really mm-hmm. interesting. I, I was also impressed with with the willingness of people to kind of be open about how the show had affected them. So mm-hmm. I, I spoke to Kevin Bright, who's one of the creators of the show, and he he spoke very honestly with me about the ways in which the show had kind of affected his personal life, that he'd had th- this thing, which by television standards is literally the best you can do, right? You have a mm-hmm. big hit show, that goes on for 10 seasons. And his point was television is, there's no like half time in television. If you mm-hmm. have a hit show, or frankly, if you don't have a hit show, but you have a show, you work 70, 80 hour weeks. And so he was absent from home from his family for 10 years, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he talked with me about kind of the impact that it had, had on his life and, and the challenges that he had had afterwards. And I think also um, in a sort of similar vein, you realize that having this kind of success is amazing and also challenging. Like right. when you know at age 40 what You've the peaked. first line of your obituary is going to be, right. I think yeah. that's really hard. Even though it's even though it's it's the kind of hard that you probably want to have happen right. to you, I think right. that's challenging when you say, I what do what do I do to follow this up? Right. Especially in something that's as uh transactionary or, or quickly moving and quickly forgetting as Hollywood. Yeah. So what were a couple of things that you learned that you were like disappointed to find out? If anything. Yeah, if anything. And nothing comes to mind. Yeah. Yeah. All right, that's fair. Yeah, reading about some of the writers' schedules, like Marta Kaufman, who wouldn't miss like two nights of bedtime with her kids, like she would put them to bed and then come home or like would, uh, and then go back to work and then like be there when they went to school because she hadn't gone to bed yet. I think I think it's uh, so interesting to talk to more of the writers because you, one, being a writer is not that glamorous, no. and when, I mean it's, it's <laughs> disgusting mostly. Like you sit in a room and just come up with jokes all day, and like you don't leave, you eat there and sleep there, and that's all you do. Yep. Um, but that uh, most people when they associate uh, TV shows are thinking about the actors, so talking to the writers about their very unglamorous uh, and really grueling life is is interesting, or just trying to relax and watch TV and all you can think about are other jokes that yeah. you should be doing. Like it's, it's interesting to read about how the show like seeped into their lives and sort of like warped how they would like 
relax or enjoy themselves or do anything if they could do anything. And, and, you know, basically all the writers have gone on to have careers in television mm-hmm. and they, to, to a person, they basically all said the same thing, which is I've never had to work as hard as I worked on Friends, even mm-hmm. on shows where I was in charge of the show, I wasn't working that hard. And they're obviously extremely proud of the work they've done and also mm-hmm. a little bit traumatized by how unbelievably intense it was. hundred percent. Honestly, reading about it reminded me of campaign work. Of like, you love this thing and yeah. you're so dedicated to it so that you'll work 14, 16 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, you eat terrible food. Um, and hopefully, you know, you're super proud about how it ends, but like right. maybe it doesn't go all that well. But I was like, oh, this is this is what working on a campaign is like. Yeah, that's a really um, good comparison. Relentless. Relentless. Um, maybe a few more jokes and a lot less like knocking on people's doors. But like for the right. most part, it's relatively, it's it. Seemed pretty apt. <laughs> yeah. The same kind of life. Everyone kind of banding together for a particular cause. And like, and you will always be connected. Um, like, uh, I remember the the family who put me up uh, in North Carolina. This was like a year ago. They needed me to. They were like, "Hey, we're coming through New York, but we like really need a favor." I was like, "I would do anything for you." Um, like, <laughs> yes, of course. I needed to go pick up tickets for them, like from a travel agency, and I held on to them until they could come and pick it up. Like. 10 hours later, but like, I'm sure these writers will always sort of feel that like root system connection of like what they had been through together. Um, I'm wondering if any of the writers in your conversations talked about how friends then, or that working environment shaped their outlook on the working environment they wanted for themselves, that they wanted to create. So sort of like, because of how hard I worked, I knew that I didn't want to have that schedule for the rest of my life or sort of how is, how is their time on friends sort of affected the environments that they've sought out? Yeah, I think generally people did not want to ever have to work that hard again. But uh, they, David Crane, who who basically ran the writers' room, was about ten years older than most of the writers mm-hmm. when they first got started, and um, they clearly looked up to him. He was a kind of father figure. He, he was someone that they made fun of and and bantered with, but his ability to kind of focus on getting the best possible version of a joke or the best possible version of a line. And his the way that he could hear ten different examples from mm-hmm. ten different people in the room, and then pull them all together and say, "Okay, this is what's going to happen in this episode." I think that that was a kind of remarkable skill that stayed in their minds even after Friends, where they they would kind of ask themselves, "Okay, well, how did we do it on the mm-hmm. show? What what techniques did we utilize to get the best possible version of the work?" Even if they weren't working at quite those right. same insane hours. Those ideas about, well, what goes into a a quality writer's room seems to have stuck with a lot of the writers on the show. Yeah. That sounds also very familiar to, um, I listened to the Good Place podcast Mm -hmm. where Mark Evan Jackson interviews all kinds of people, you know, from uh, the special effects person to writers to some of the actors on the show. And they talk about Mike Schur. Uh, in a similar way, all the actors and a lot of the writers do about sort of being like their workplace dad um, and the person that they make fun of because apparently the entire writer's room calls him daddy, I think, which is very weird. Mm. Um, but they've had, he's had like Megan Amram on the show who writes on The Good Place and now they, they sort of talk about um, the sim- similar dynamics of just having like their their chief that they that they follow and I wouldn't mind that. It seems like from what I've read and heard, Michael Schur is just like a decent human being, which I think is somewhat rare in the world of television. No, he seems very thoughtful and really conscientious and like really open. He got Um, a show made about philosophy. I mean, he's (laughs) written so many other shows though. And they were just like, please do whatever you want. want. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Are you sure? (laughs) It's enough philosophy. (laughs) And they're like, yes, please God. We're going to do do a deep dive on existentialism. 
stick, stick around. Yeah. It was a good episode. So I, I want to turn more to to get into like the politics and, and uh, modern day life politics, but I, I, maybe this is a way to kind of clue into that. You wrote an article recently, I think it was in the New York Times, about how there's never going to be a reunion. Mm-hmm. So not doing a reunion, but like redoing, doing mm-hmm. Friends anew in 2019, what would it look like? If if they were to do the show all over again yeah. with the new with the new cast, yeah, I think so. I mean, like, because reunion clearly, like, the writers or the creators don't want to do it, even if the actors like tease it so that they can, you know, get on Colbert or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the the clearly just from the outset, you'd have to have the cast look different. The cast couldn't be all white, mm-hmm. and I think the cast couldn't be all straight. So mm-hmm. I was just, like, it's going to be browner. It's going to be gayer. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. just a fact. Yeah. Right. That would just the apartments be would be way shittier. <laughs> yeah. They could maybe still get away with that, although even that mm. would probably have to change too. Yeah. And I, th- I think that they'd, they'd have to have a little bit more of the city flavor in it. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't just the, – the complaints at the time weren't just this is a show about six white people because Friends wasn't the only show that was only no, about white people. most shows were. But it was, it was even that the, the city when you saw it, the people sitting in the background of Central Park or the people right. you encounter right. on the street, they somehow were also all white. Right. And so – that just like tone deafness to what's the actual New York that people live in like, that would clearly have to change, even if it was still shot before a live studio mm-hmm. audience in Los Angeles. Right, 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 right. I, I don't recall um, which director, maybe it was Ava DuVernay that I heard this from, but um, a, a director had a similar point of all the, the background actors of like, you can tell how committed a show is to diversity, not by their main cast, um, by what, by what the background actors look like. I never thought of it. That's a um, great, that's by a great the people point. that they, um, that are just like used to like fill a space or make a party look like a party, make a street look like a street, et cetera, um, is to sort of, uh, what kind of people are there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how you can tell like with, um, who the person who's in charge of the show, like what they actually think uh, mm-hmm. about diversity is by casting different background actors. Yeah. And one of the things that, that came up in some of the reading I did for this book was there were a lot of articles written about this issue at the time. It mm-hmm. wasn't something that went unnoticed by any means. And part of the argument that was being made, it was being made by television executives. They weren't saying it on the record, but they were sort of ex- espousing what the what the issue was. They're saying that in drama, it was easier in a way to cast more diversely if you picture sort of a standard issue drama, one that takes place in like a police station or a hospital, there are a lot of different roles that can be filled. And there's just a, a sort of bigger cast. So that is helpful. And and it seemed like for a lot of net, network executives at the time, there was this concern of, well, if we cast non-white performers, will mm-hmm. they be relatable? Like, will right. people be able to relate to them? Will they still find them funny? Will they still kind of identify with them? I think I think a good portion of that concern has abated over time, mm-hmm. and I, I don't think, just based on the casting of other comedy shows from the last five ten years, that doesn't seem to be like at the height of of network executives' concerns when it comes to comedy. So I think that that would change as well. Mm-hmm. Got it. All right. So I want to take a turn into. I mean, one of the things that I. I love throughout the book was your little sprinklings of anti-Trump rants, which <laughs> I was hoping for and, and, and love. I can't avoid it. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't think any of us can, but there's one paragraph in, in the conclusion. I thought that this was really interesting. So it says, uh, in this light, friends is less a promise for the future than a pleasing fantasy in which to take cover. The country was in crisis and there was no longer even the semblance of a, of a guarantee that, mat- that matters would not get worse before they get better if they ever did. Friends has found a new audience searching for an escape from the cycle of news alerts and Twitter threads. It is a place in which bad news is temporary and friendship eternal. It is a place whose sturdiness stems from 
a belief in the idea of planning for a well-marked, easily achievable future that looked in the second decade of the 21st century increasingly remarkable. So that to me, like, you, you know, if you started this based off of, you know, that Friends is suddenly popular, like that almost encompasses what it's all about is that we're all going batshit crazy in dumbest timeline America. It's relentless. It doesn't stop. It just gets worse. It just gets dumber. Somehow, day in and day out, it gets dumber. <laughs> how do you, how do you approach just culture in general in relation to the fact that we're living through a reality television show presidency? I think it's really challenging. I, I read a really fascinating book recently by James Ponawazek, who's the television critic for the Times. Yeah, it's called Audience of One, and it's about. Um, it's, I think I read an excerpt of this in, in Vanity Fair, maybe. Probably, yeah. yeah. It, it's simultaneously a kind of history Absolutely of television also. over the last 60 years and also a history of Donald Trump's uh-huh. life in television. Uh, and it does a really good job of explaining some of the ways in which television, in which television is kind of at the heart of the changes to society and the ways in which television has kind of played a role in the combination of celebrity and entertainment and politics where they're all kind of the same thing now. And and so I think right. that, that that's part of why we're in this disaster that we're in. I mean, we always talk about how, you know, part of the problem with the news media is that it used to be there were four, four papers or five papers and everybody watched one of the same three broadcasts at 630 every single night. And now you can find news that you want. You can, you know, everything's customizable. Everybody gets a pony. Everybody's special. And everybody can read what they want to read. And it seems to me that whereas Friends, when it was on, it was, you know, that was what you were talking about, literally at the water cooler or the water fountain, I guess, when we were in high school the the next day. Whereas now, everything's bespoke. And you can see any kind of show you want. You can watch Duck Dynasty or whatever, you know. Duck Dynasty? Is that not a good example of like <laughs> No, Trump I just I haven't thought about that show in a long time. Neither have I, but it was the first one that popped in my head of like <laughs> MAGA red hat wearing fuckers. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, you have the what's treated as kind of the positive side of this, which is that we have so much television, so much quality television. Everyone can pick their own shows that they like. The Good Place, Atlanta, whatever, BoJack Horseman, right? We can all kind of find our way to wonderful shows rather than saying what's on NBC at 8.30, I can right. only watch that. The downside of that, and this is one of the points that Ponawazic makes in his book, is that it's it's a mistake to leave out the other side, the like news and reality side of that equation. Mm-hmm. And so in the same way that we have so much more choice and some of that choice is great and some of it is terrible, we also have that in the news. And so instead of having kind of arbiters or, or people who tell us straight, we have this endless variety in which people can literally pretend that the truth is not real because it makes them happy and entertainment is all that matters and politics is entertainment and we don't need to worry about anything else. I mean, I think there's something to be said though of like, it's not just about choice. Everyone gets a pony or you can sort of like create your own reality, which like, sure, that's definitely something that can happen, but also like it's for me, at least deeply reassuring that like the same people that held the reins of power, you had three networks and what we decide is news is news is that there's a lot of other news that's going on in the world. So if you have other outlets that are more specialized or you have different kinds of TV shows, there are other voices that power has been a bit more democratized in what we can actually consume as opposed to it being tightly, tightly controlled by um, by white guys. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think that it's there are just there are two sides to it. Absolutely, right? power Absolutely. being tightly controlled is not great, and having 
a wider sphere of people holding some power or making decisions about what we see and what we hear and what we think is good, it's also bad, right? Like we're getting both sides mm -hmm. of that simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And there's and, gotta be a point of diminishing returns before you hit Alex Jones. Oh God, <laughs> diminish Alex Jones entirely, please. <laughs> Terrible. So if we were casting friends out of the presidential candidates, I don't really know how, I don't, oh, really know, yes. I don't really know where I'm going with that one. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly don't know where I was going with that question. It was just kind of like the way I wanted to I mean, pivot. obviously Joe Biden is um, the downstairs neighbor who's, oh, what, Mr. Um, what's his name? He wears a bathrobe and he dies in oh, one of the- his name. Mr. Not Higgins. God, what is his name? I don't know. I didn't, write the, I, I didn't write the book. No, um, he's a, but he's he's the crotchety downstairs neighbor that always says that you're, you know, all of your walking around is interrupting my bird, my bird yes, musical I'm practice. Picturing him in my you know? mind right now, um, Mr. Heckles. Mr. Mr. Heckles. Heckles yes, Joe Biden is Mr. Played Heckles. Played by played by Larry Hankin. Um, so that's love where we're, we're Mr. Heckles. So obviously, obviously, Joe Biden is Mr. Heckles. If you're asking me, what about Elizabeth Warren? Elizabeth Warren, um, who could she, I mean... She's Monica. Well, I mean, I think what also makes... Because this is actually a game that I play with my friends a lot of sort of like, who are you in the TV show? Which like, there's a ton of BuzzFeed quizzes about that too. Oh, but sure. what I find very, very, very funny is to try to come up with something incredibly obscure about it. Like, um, uh, I would say that Tulsi Gabbard uh, is the Gladys painting, which actually is a really horrifying looking painting that Phoebe has. And it's like a mannequin that's like half like derangedly hanging out of the picture frame. So like that's who Tulsi Gabbard is. <laughs> so if you can avoid Fact. the main, if you can avoid the main characters for like right. some friends, like true believers, like it, this could be a very fun game. And clearly Marianne Williamson is Phoebe. Oh, clearly. Yeah. Oh, clearly. Yeah. That's a very good one. Yeah. That's I mean, a very good one. Because it's been so long since we were, since recorded, there was an article in the New York Times magazine probably one or two weeks, weeks ago. Uh, about Marianne Williamson. And I didn't read the whole article because I got to this line and I decided there's no reason to keep going because it was just such a good line. She said, when David Brooks says it, it's profound. When I say it, it's woo-woo. <laughs> oh my God. That's the worst thing I've ever heard. Is Well, is Marianne Williamson actually Ursula? Hmm. Maybe. Of is just she... like the kind of flighty other twin that we don't ever really see. Is oh, the one from the other show. Is she mean though? I'm not sure. I say mean. Ursula is super, super mean. Um, she's but... maybe just kooky. Well, I mean... Mary Williamson did reach out to Molly Jong Fast's mother, Erica Jong, and was like, your daughter's being rude to me on Twitter. What? Um, so, oh yeah, it was very funny. Um, but I feel like that's not necessarily mean. It's just like whiny yeah. and complainy. There was a, uh, what was it the Quinnipiac poll that came out last week? I don't remember which poll it was where I think it was 400 um, New York New York voters and to see like where people are placing in a theoretical New York primary right now. And one person said they would vote for de Blasio. Oh, my God. And Actually, that's what I was just thinking. Who is de Blasio and, on and, Friends? And two said they would vote for Cory Booker. I'm amazed that there was one person who was voting for de Blasio. Right. That's already an improvement right. about, over where he was before. And they probably misunderstood the question of, like, yes, de Blasio is my mayor. And they were like, eh, well. <laughs> Close enough. Close enough. Or somebody coded it wrong when they were, when they were doing the stats. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it is dumbest timeline America, and there's going to be a lot to talk about um, with the primaries as we go through this mm -hmm. just hellscape of way too long to get down to the five people that we knew who it was going to be 
I'm amazed that people haven't dropped out to the extent that I expected them to at this point. I figured that at least 10 or 15 of the candidates would be, be gone, gone and everyone is just hanging on you, for dear life. Well, de Blasio, you underestimate de Blasio, the power of the ego, man. Yeah. It, well, de Blasio's <laughs> got two. He's got the ego, but he also doesn't want to do his day job. That's so true. I feel like the, um, there was some article that came out uh, not too long ago that tallied the number of hours that de Blasio had spent like in office since May and it was like, it was like seven. seven. It yeah. was really low. I was yeah. like, oh my God. It was like, I think I spent that much time like on a plane. <laughs> no less. Honestly, yeah. it's like I've never met anyone that wanted to leave New York more than the mayor of New York. Yeah. And I'd just like to point out that being a mayor of New York is a really great job. Yeah. And I, I don't hate Bill de Blasio. But I'm resentful that he seems to get so little pleasure from it, where our previous mayors, for better and for worse, were hanging on for dear life. Like, so please give me more please time yeah. to do this, this amazing job. job. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's good. There's going to be a lot to talk about. I don't know that we need to recap the debates that I didn't watch because The only why? thing that we need to say about the debates is that three hours is far too many hours. For a debate. For anything. I'm just, for literally anything. Nothing. Nothing. I've, is, used, I've used your line, I don't know how many times this summer, about <laughs> things, a meeting can't be more than two hours. If a meeting is longer than two hours, it's no longer a meeting. It's I don't know else. what it is, yeah. but it's not a meeting. Yeah. Uh, and I don't need my time being disrespected like that. Keep yeah. everything to a tight 90. That's what right. I say. <laughs> that's a, about the amount of time that people can like sit and pay attention. It's about the, as long as the human brain can do, you know, one task without needing a break. So... Tight 90 on these debates. And surprisingly, God. people, to bring it back full circle, people will binge for hours. But again, the episode itself, an episode of Friends Without Commercials is like, what, 25 minutes, 22 minutes? Yeah. Like, that is really short. And there is so much plot to churn through with an ABC plot. You get tons, tons of content to get through. Right, 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 right. Whereas, Plus, I'm also on Twitter while I'm binging whatever it is right. I'm watching. Well, so. that, that's also I'm like, like, kind of doing two things that's at once. Kind of, yeah, my, my two things at once happens a lot. Like, if I'm on a conference call... Because again, conference like if a meeting shouldn't be two hours, a conference call shouldn't be more than fifteen minutes. Mm, that's true. Um, but I've always like there's something going on in the background. If I'm trying to write something, I just need something like noise in the background. Uh, for some reason, I've gotten where it used to be music I needed in the background. Now, like I just need something that like is sort of out of my sight line, but is there and playing something. And I don't know how many times I've turned through Parks and Rec at this point or Big Mouth, which that. Such means, a good show. Great show. <laughs> it's coming back soon, and the new trailer dropped yesterday, oh, and did I'm it? so excited I know for season I, three. I know what I'm watching right after we finish this. Oh, yeah. It's really good. So, Saul, so, because uh, you've been very generous with your time, and we know you've got a lot going on this week with the the book having just come out. How was the event last night? It was great. Thanks for asking. Great. Yeah, it was Sorry really I missed it. Not a problem. Um, we have a what we call our patented lightning round. Mm-hmm. Um, it consists of four questions that we ask uh, all of our guests, and it's always three of the same questions, and one rotates occasionally. Um, so if you're game, Absolutely. we will toss them at you. So the first one, and you can't say your new book, because that's just I mean, you can, too easy. Like, you can, but come on. Come on. Uh, a book, piece of music, film, television program, any piece of culture that you'd recommend to our listeners? Hmm. Well, a book that I read... Uh, not too long ago, which I loved, which I'm really surprised didn't get more attention, and it's by a New Yorker, so I feel especially good about promoting it, is a novel called Lost Empress by Sergio Della Pava. He's a writer whose day job is that he is a, um, a lawyer in the New York City court system, and so he has this incredible window into how life is actually lived, and he's right. written this giant atmospheric book that's partially about law and partially about football and partially about New York and everything else. And it's just 
incredible and I highly recommend it. Ooh, that sounds I like good. That. And we'll put we'll put a link to it in our show notes yeah. um, so that folks can can grab it for themselves. Um, the second question is um, a food or a drink that you've had recently that you would recommend uh, people try. That people try. Yeah. If they if they can or that, you know, you just or have a lovely con- experience or just with. Continue their lives solely consisting on. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, depending how good it is. My my life is is would be much poorer without ice cream and chocolate chip cookies. So obviously. I, I I stand for those even though they are very middle of the road choices. No, they are great. As someone who just had a birthday, I've had lots of those in the past couple of days. So particular ice cream flavor or brand? Um, my son's school is right near Ample Hills in Brooklyn, oh, yes. which oh. is mm-hmm. pretty much the best ice cream that yeah, I've that's ever real had good in stuff. my entire life. That's really. We were at a wedding in Cape Cod a couple of years ago, and they flew it in. They it's, flew it in. Yeah. Oh, we're not yes. flew it in. Like they had it shipped from yeah, yeah. FedEx no, or whatever. Smart. Yeah, which I, I guess was flown on. I would totally understand doing yeah. that. It's worth yeah. it. Uh, okay, third question. Um, are Pop Tarts ravioli? I don't know what that means. <laughs> good answer. <laughs> I mean, it's an easy way to get out yeah, of it. Yeah, that's sure. a good answer. All right, so we'll, we'll try We'll try a second one. Are hot dogs a sandwich? No. Okay. Again, just like yeah, I love right it. away. Uh, and then the last one is um, in these trying times of uh, the Trump administration, uh, a lot of people are interested in doing something, getting involved in some way, taking some sort of action. Um, so what would be one organization or thing to do that you would recommend supporting? Well, I have been doing a good chunk of that over the last couple of years when I haven't been working on this book. And the big thing that we are focusing on for the next year is that we are going to try to go to Pennsylvania and do voter registration. Yes. And then also when we're closer to having an actual nominee, start knocking on doors and talking to people. That is the best one. It's not, it's it's not sexy and it's not like Mm -hmm. super digital and text messagey and whatever, but don't, in my mind, the only thing that actually works in terms of getting people to vote and getting them to vote hopefully the way you want them to mm-hmm. is knocking on their door and talking to them and t- telling them a little bit about your candidate or mm-hmm. your position or whatever. And it's actually really fun and really amazing and you feel good about yourself and you feel like you're not just sitting on Twitter and talking shit or yeah feeling terrible about the world, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. Well, you're speaking to my little organizer heart as someone who knocked two packets on Long Island uh, last last election. So, yes, absolutely. GOTV is the best thing you can possibly do. Yes, because if that if you're, if you're of the mindset of, I just send one more tweet, fuck you. Go knock a door. Go knock a door. Yeah. Go knock, Go a, knock a door. All right, Saul. So uh, where can people find you? Where can they, well, don't give us your address, but like where can people follow you? <laughs> uh, you can check out my website, which is SaulAusterlitz.com, and you can also follow me on Twitter at SaulAusterlitz. All right, Maggie, anything else? No. I Saul, think... any last thoughts that we didn't cover that you... No, thanks so much for having me. This is All right, so again, well. please um, follow Saul, follow us at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P as in perfunctory. Um, or Phoebe. Or Phoebe, also good. Damn it, I always... <laughs> Every single week. I'm here week. for you. I'm here for you. Um, you can uh, obviously uh, please do subscribe and rate us. Um, hopefully this show will get us some more listeners because all you youngins listening to friends out there, just know that I'm the old man and Frank and Maggie are much younger than me and hipper. Yeah. They're cool. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, since we Frank is not here, we will not resume our our war with the sea, so we're not taking ship this week. Hopefully we will do so in the next in the next in the coming days. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Saul. This has been great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everybody.